The other thing that's very important in the way in which they approach these things is they're not looking to blame someone. They're looking to find out what went wrong and the underlying causes of that. Hello, and you are very welcome to this, the final episode of the Hidden Power podcast, Series 1, Proof of Concept. We've heard from pioneers bringing new ways of thinking to practical social challenges from... It's all feeling very stuck. To... Change is possible. We see it every day. And we've heard about some breakthroughs in dealing with prevailing complex issues. A central challenge is climate change, and I often think of Buckminster Fuller's idea, Spaceship Earth. And with that in mind... I wanted to theme this episode around a post-crash analysis in 1935 that led to the widespread use of something anyone who has flown will be familiar with, the pre-flight checklist. It's a great story, and I will put a link in the show notes. Conveniently, Ed has already applied this globally recognised post-crash analysis model to government, and has also devised a kind of pre-flight checklist for Spaceship Earth. More of that in a minute. First, a relevant digression relating to this ideal of a global learning engine. So this is uh, for the University of Oxford Side Business School, Skoll Centre for Social Entrepreneurship. 3,500 entries to the competition for mm. systems thinking. Also, and there were 31 finalists that we judged. I mean, all sorts of things from modern slavery in Papua New Guinea um, adolescent pregnancy in Peru, homeless in Vancouver, uh, menstruation, and, and so on. Fake news, actually, as well. Uh, immense variety. And the thing that so impressed me was, well, two things very much impressed me. The quality of the people that were mm. doing this work. And, so and the, the, these weren't uh, people attending the course. These are people in the individual countries in individual countries, in higher education, in systems thinking, and they had to analyse one of these problems mm. through systems tools, systems mapping, identifying levers and gaps for change. Their job was not to come up with an answer. Their job was to come up with what's called the solutions landscape. And what was so impressive was the, the sheer quality of these people around the world. Um, mm. So they're all early 20s that sort of age, the lack of ideology uh, that they brought to the table, their ability to communicate. But the other thing that was so extraordinary was that everywhere is different. You know, each of these countries is very, very different and everywhere is the same. So adolescent pregnancy, yeah, uh, <laughs> sort of come, come across, across that as an issue. Mm. Homelessness, menstruation fake news. I mean, the modern slavery in uh, Papua New Guinea was something else. But even something like female genital mutilation in Somalia, well, that actually is an issue here as well. So you're then starting to say, well, okay, we've got these issues around the world. Why do we not have mechanisms to learn from each other as to the different approaches that people have taken? Interestingly, that's going back to earlier podcasts, that's exactly what happened with Japanese manufacturing. And people, the reason manufacturing works to such a high standard now is because people and organisations learn from each other, but on a global basis. Ditto airline safety, absolutely astonishing levels of safety. People have learned from each other, but on a global basis. In 
another book, not The Hidden Power of Systems Thinking, but Stand and Deliver, I think it is. You've talked about using a post-crash analysis as a way of analysing the state of governance. Uh, yeah, there you are. Uh, an aeroplane goes down. Now, safety on aeroplanes and indeed other modes of transport is absolutely paramount. So we want to find out what went wrong. The crucial point at this time is the governance of the investigation, the failure analysis. So this is an independent process. It has specialists and experts engaged in it. It particularly interested in evidence and data and information and knowledge. And they piece all that together to work out why something failed. Well, it occurred to me that, I mean, failure in government is uh, commonplace. And sometimes there are big failures. So why do we not analyze those, but not with a sort of royal commission or an inquiry by a judge, but through this form of post-crash analysis? The other thing that's very important in the way in which they approach these things is they're not looking to blame someone. They're looking to find out what went wrong and the underlying causes of that. So let's take that and say, okay, we had a financial crash in 2008. Let's get an independent analysis of that and understand what went wrong. Now, what then happens in airlines and uh, rail is that, and, and indeed all spheres, uh, offshore wind turbines, ships, all sorts of things, is that you then, stemming out of that, have what's called design authority. Mm -hmm. So a design authority, again, brings together specialists. There'll be engineers, there'll be scientists, but there'll also be people out of government and regulation and so on, and people out of the industry that are building these things and the component suppliers and so on. So you get that group together and that becomes the design authority, for example, for offshore wind turbines. Now, we need to take the knowledge and understanding from the crashes, from the failures, and put that into the design standards or guidelines. And then they start to look ahead. This came out of insurance. So there were the insurers. I think it started off in shipping. Ships are right. sinking. Why are they sinking? There's a very clear incentive to sort this out. The history of the development of A, why do we learn from failure? Why do we acknowledge failure, first of all, and, and learn from it? There's a, another very important point there in design authorities. Failure is not ignored. It's actually almost celebrated mm. because while something awful may have happened, there's an awful lot to be learned from it. And the methods, I mean, where they end up are with these design standards. So what, for example, is the standard that we should now be applying, given there are hurricanes around, for the strength of a blade on a turbine on an offshore wind farm? And you might go down to specifying its strength. You might go down to specifying the materials and the shape and construction of those materials. 
Now, think about that for government and think about, okay, now we want to spec how to deliver child protection. This is where you've got to be careful because one side is engineering and it's very precise, but now we're moving into an area that's not as precise and the variables have just expanded. So in these circumstances, actually, if you took Eileen Munro's design specification, which was a lot about decentralization, empowerment of the front line, having different feedback mechanisms, you could set that as a design spec for how you do child protection. Now, the other important thing for design authorities and ships and railways and all the rest of it is that they take knowledge worldwide. This is not something you say, well, in Britain, we're going to do it like this. If Mm. there's a plane crash anywhere in the world, then that knowledge will be applied to how planes are built around the world. Through regulation, or is it more that there's a system of standards that everyone sees the point of already and they just sign up, they draw on uh, that knowledge base? Yeah, I mean, both. You'll find, for example, so every engine, whilst it's flying, is, is monitored, um, and it will be monitored by the maker, Rolls-Royce, say, for example. Mm-hmm. And they're checking the operation of that engine constantly they're doing that because that will extend the life of the engine but it'll also limit the number of failures of that engine and so there are there are strong commercial and safety reasons and and i think i don't think there are any regulations on the end of that i think they just get on do it uh, Mm. because it needs to be done and the point here is that there are certain things that you you can do because the technology is there There are certain things you mentioned, the pre-flight checklist, that that may well, it will certainly be a regulation within the industry, whether it's a government regulation, I don't know. That's pretty precise. However, which is the world's safest airline? And the answer is Qantas. Mm -hmm. They never advertise it for the very obvious reason that the first crash they have, there'll be an enormous dive in their reputation. Now, A very famous psychologist, Dr. Norman Dixon, who wrote on the psychology of military incompetence, which is a wonderful book about systems thinking. Anyway, he was also an air crash investigator, but he was looking at the psychological reasons. So his take on the reason that Qantas is the safest airline in the world is because of the Australian culture, which is very non-hierarchical and doesn't pay homage to authority. All of the airlines in the world came out of their military airlines mm. when they were established post-war. So it's very much, you have a captain, he's in charge. If the captain says, press this button, you press this button. On the Australian flight deck, someone's coming in a bit too fast and the co-pilot says to the pilot, hey, Cobber, uh, I think you're coming in a bit too fast there, mate. Have you got your flaps extended enough? you've got this feedback process going on. And that, in his view, in other words, that cultural influence was what makes Contos the safest airline in the world. And I think so often in trying to design in or regulate in, I should say, safety, people miss the absolute centrality of culture and values on a building site, for example. The thing that then would come out of 
design authorities as well, potentially, or that mentality of those, is the vetting of government decisions. And it's not the political vetting as to, you know, do we agree or disagree with your politics? It's the technical vetting of those decisions. Particularly, you know, you want to do something. Well, how are you going to do it? Mm. Um, Does it stack up? What's the process that you've gone through to come to that decision? And have you, for example, consulted stakeholders, citizens? Vetting does occur in Mm. the system of government. You typically have committees of members of parliament, representatives from the second house. You may have separate institutions and they do a certain amount of vetting. But (laughs) it's pretty limited it's fairly bureaucratic in mindset. And at the end of the day, in our system governing as it stands, if the government of the day wants to do something, it can do it because that's the system we have. It will just get the MPs as lobby fodder and it will be voted through. So you've got to have a much more robust and effective system of vetting. You know, if you think about how does the government's model work? Well, you've got the state You've got the private sector, you've got the judiciary, you've got civil society and you've got the media who we put with the private sector because the old fourth estate role has has largely disappeared. And civil society, which is basically people, communities, groups getting on and doing stuff, either as an assortment, a voluntary assortment of individuals or through a social enterprise or whatever it is, has been forgotten. One of the great strengths that Alec de Tocqueville saw in American democracy was what he called, uh, this is in uh, the 1800s, what he Mm. called the art of association. The people in America, and you can imagine this, you know, Mm. they're pioneers. People would just get together and Mm. sort things out. And he said that was a huge, huge strength. So you've got those four groups. So you've got the state, the private sector plus media, judiciary, civil society. Mm. And so what other players, as it were, what other components missing from that model? Mm. Well, if you just turn around and say, well, what about the planet? Mm. What about the biosphere? Because essentially the climate crisis, et cetera, that we're facing has been produced because we've just regarded the planet as this infinite resource and infinite dumping ground. Mm. Not only that, if the myths and metaphors which govern a lot of the way we think, if you go to the Bible, you know, man shall have dominion over all of nature. Well, hang on, I think nature is kicking back a bit now. We're in a bit of a power battle with nature and there's only one winner and it's not us. Uh, I think it might be a good idea if we put the biosphere centrally. Conventional economists treat the environment as an externality. Mm. It doesn't count in their calculations. But on, on that point, there does seem to be progress. In, in, I mean, I don't know how whether it's being adopted, but I've come across this idea of donut economics. Where yeah, the donut, donut economy, circular economy, uh, new green deal are, are, are all about saying we have to put, you know, it's not a choice in any of this. We have to put the biosphere into the governance model. 
Uh, and what we've said, you, you have to put it centrally. We're getting back to the tetrahedron. So we have those, those four elements. So, so put and the And then you've got these layers that you've introduced to that, or those yeah. three. So, so, so the biosphere, the technosphere, which has become this major, major part. I mean, the technosphere, you know, is everything that we've made and built. I mean, yeah, it starts right. with, I don't know, tarmac. But, but know, this, this is, is techne in the, in the Greek sense of, of uh, kind of human activity as opposed to technology as yeah. such. It's yeah, and we need to understand it both in terms of what we were talking earlier in these very modern technologies coming in and mm. potentially controlling our lives. Do we want that? But we also need to understand it in terms of, well, just resource extraction, mm. for example. You know, how much more stuff how much more resources can we extract? And the third one is really interesting, which is social purpose, which is about saying that essentially we do need meaning in our lives. Mm. And if you look at the blue zones, the blue zones around the world, I think there are seven of them, are where people have very long lives, you know, over 100 on average. And one of the consistent themes from those particular groups is they all have a sense of purpose, a sense mm. of meaning. And that purpose may be their garden or their crops. You and Ray Eisen have developed your 26 principles of systemic mm. governing. And there is some room for optimism that this perspective on things is being adopted this is something that potentially governments could sign up to, like a, a Paris Agreement or something along those lines. Um, yeah. And yet, at the same time, one would imagine that that could potentially meet with the same kind of opposition from the, the sort of heavily industrialized players, uh, such as the US or China. So what would a, a global social contract or, or constitution look like? So we've got these 26 principles. I mean, governments at national, supranational and local levels vary considerably in relation to the way in which these principles are and aren't practiced. Uh, some of them are pretty good, but none of them have all of these uh, principles in operation. The point, I think, would be, and your point, is to think about these in the round and to adopt them in the way in which you were saying earlier on, the OECD, the UN and WHO have all adopted the view that systems thinking is the way to go, to consider these principles and maybe amend them, maybe add to them, but then certainly get on and say, okay, these are the principles that we need to see operating in every constitution. Now, why do you need to put them in the constitution? Well, the problem is, but if you don't, enlightenment will gradually take hold, but it's not going to take hold at anywhere near the speed that it mm. needs to take hold. And the second thing is, the fact of the matter is, the constitutions make people, governments, and us do what we need to do. And the better written is a constitution, the more the right things will happen. So if you look back, I think it's arguable that the reason the US has been so successful in the 20th century 
is because in the very late 1700s, they developed a constitution which was actually world class at the time. It had all sorts of things in it, not least considerable decentralization, considerable checks and balances, considerable control over people in power, but also a number of other factors that meant they had a really good and an indeed democratic constitution, which is often the key difference. If you look then at Germany and Japan after the war, well, their constitutions were scrapped entirely. Not only were they scrapped, but the institutions that become embodied in buildings, they were all flattened as well. So there was nothing to start off with. There was no history holding them back. And indeed, history was such, well, history was the awfulness of the war. So we don't want to be looking back. We're only going to be looking forward. They then had constitutions designed by, I think, the Americans and and the British. And interestingly, (laughs) officials from those countries knew what good constitutions looked like. They were also very decentralized. Interestingly, particularly in Germany, they were decentralized in order to prevent the accumulation of power centrally in one person, aka another Adolf Hitler. But decentralization is an essential a component of a well-functioning uh, constitution. So they got two new constitutions after the war. My word, which were the two countries that were most successful for such a long time in that period, Germany and Japan. Constitutions matter far more than any of us realise. And we are going to have to get our heads around this thing that most of us never see and understand just how important it is. So I hope you are now seeing how a constitution is like a pre-flight checklist, because we're at the end of series one, and in series two, pre-flight checklist, we take the next part of our journey, this time through the principles that will see us comfortably into the future on Spaceship Earth. And if you just hit that subscribe button now, they will land week by week in your podcast feed starting January 2021. Change is possible. We see it every day. And in trying to look at that new model, we've had to start by transforming ourselves. And to learn is to change. Mm. That's the crucial point, you know. To wrap things up, here's Gerald Midgley, one of the founding fathers of systems thinking as an intentional discipline. And I think there was a watershed moment in 2017 and for me that watershed moment was when the UN, uh, the WHO and OECD all called at roughly the same time for the use of systems thinking to deal with highly complex problems Um, and suddenly the interest exploded and if you just think about um, the UK. So we have a systems unit in the cabinet office in the UK. Um, I've been doing a bit of work with those people. They do really know what they're doing. We have systems capacity in DEFRA. We've got local governments up and down the country who are recruiting systems teams and public health in particular uh, has been influenced by the use of systems thinking as part of community development. So we've got a, a situation now where a lot of public health outcomes are being viewed as emergent properties of um 
volunteer-led community development rather than being something that can be imposed top-down through target-driven uh, uh, work, just like Ed was saying earlier about that uh, example in Froome. We've got a systems thinking practitioner apprenticeships, so it's becoming a recognized career to use systems thinking. We've got 31,000 people in systems thinking network on LinkedIn, um, which is the biggest collection altogether of systems thinkers I've seen anywhere. Um, and I think Pirat earlier was right to say that there's still a big gap between knowing about it and actually doing it. But we're in a position where we can really begin to bridge that gap. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. If you've enjoyed it, please share it. Also, it would be really great if you could write a review. Reviews make a massive difference and make the show more visible. So, see you in Series 2. Goodbye. Goodbye.